0: high-resolution color graphics, this land of high technology, the revolution in technology that made the information age possible. Those kids are not afraid of computers. Welcome to This Week in Retro for the week of November 23rd, 2020. Coming up on today's show... Video game business. The Super Famicom turns 30. Another mini, another (laughs) mini-john. Codemasters sells out. All this and more on This Week in
1: Retro to date news for out-of-date tech. So John, I saw a really interesting chart this week, thanks to a story posted by listener MoBeast68W on our subreddit. And uh, this particular chart tracks the last 50 years of video game sales categorized by platform. So in the chart, we can see the arcades, we can see consoles, PC gaming, handheld, mobile gaming, and then just a tiny, tiny mark at uh, the end of the chart is the more recent VR and cloud gaming. And it's mm. a really interesting thing to look at. There's there's a lot of information on this infographic to enjoy. It's a roller coaster of emotions to study. Um, <laughs> first, you notice there's the rise of the arcades with its revenue, because it's all about uh, the amount of revenue per platform. So the arcades revenue peaking in 1980 around about the launch or just after the launch of Pac-Man. Um, and then you've got the console and the PC markets putting the squeeze on the arcade sector, which implodes in the years following the Sony PlayStation's release. We see the impact of the Nintendo Game Boy, and then most interesting of all is the rise of gaming on mobile phones. Which it shouldn't really come as a surprise, but it was just the scale of it. Looking at this chart, it, it, you know the segment of the market is is just astonishing in its growth. Let me give you the numbers for here and now in 2020 for all of the platforms. So um, console gaming is worth $33 billion in revenue uh, for the year. PC gaming actually exceeds console gaming, which was a bit of a surprise for me, $40 billion. So PC gamers outgunning the console gamers. But the mobile gaming is greater than both of those things combined, a whopping $85 billion. Wow. Yeah, it's huge. So does the dominance of mobile gaming surprise you, John? Because I know um you know the gaming market on phones is big but when you see it in this context it really does cause well my eyebrows my significant eyebrows to raise how about yours
0: <laughs> Well, I guess I'm sort of a pragmatist. Uh, You know, I look at the mobile market as the future of gaming. When I see my middle school students who are age uh, 11 to 13, I I look at what they're playing, what they're talking about. And it's a ton of either crossover mobile or PC games like Fortnite or Minecraft. Mm -hmm. Um, I I honestly was surprised console gaming has been able to hold on to as big a piece of a pie as they have. Uh, I honestly, seriously was not expecting to see this current generation of systems that have just come out, the Xbox. Xbox One X and the PS5. I, I figured that by 2020, everybody but possibly Nintendo would just be publishing games on PCs and phones. Um, the one advantage from a business perspective console games have is that they're able to stay full price for longer. Uh, I really believe that console exclusivity plus a steadfast refusal to put their games on sale is what has led to Nintendo as a company uh, continuing to do so well. I mean, you always look at who's making the most money out of the, the consoles and Nintendo is right up there. Uh, you know, the Nintendo games still Stay at full price pretty much forever in, in, in that they're able to keep those margins high. Uh, Of course, they have to do well because uh, unlike Microsoft and Sony, uh, you know, Nintendo's their one trick pony. They only do game versus, you know, Microsoft has this whole another business, which is wildly more profitable than than the Xbox division. And of course, Sony has a bunch of other things going on, too. Um, One thing I do see in the future is both Sony and Nintendo further developing their subscription services. You know, everybody is doing this just to take advantage of that lucrative recurring revenue that Microsoft already enjoys with their Game Pass service Mm,
1: yeah and uh, i I guess mobile gaming um and also things like netflix and amazon prime they've conditioned people to accept subscription services more and more as the norm so it's a bit of an easier task for them to get people on board but um in terms of mobile gaming john do you mobile game maybe a cheeky game of Fortnite between classes every now and then
0: Aside from chess, which I play constantly on my phone and continue to be horrible at, uh, I never play games on my phone. I just I never got used to the touch controls, you know, the whole virtual D-pad thing. It's just it's never sat right with me. And, and I don't know. I feel like there's already a million things for me to do on my phone already. Uh, I, I'm much more likely to be killing time on Reddit or watching YouTube or something like that. If I do any portable gaming, it's on my Switch or on my PSP. How about you, Neil?
1: Peak gaming on a phone for me was probably the bundled poker app that came with my work BlackBerry many years ago. <laughs> it was it was probably the first game I played on a mobile phone that had multiplayer built right in with other BlackBerry users around the world. And I was so hooked on that thing. Um it was pretend money. I wasn't real gambling on this thing. Otherwise I would have lost a huge amount of money, but yeah, I was really hooked with that. But just like you uh, gaming on a mobile for me, it's too much of a compromise. The controls are awkward. It drains my battery. Um, You know, so I'm pretty switched off to gaming on my phone these days, Uh, but clearly I'm in the minority uh, looking at these numbers and, and from your anecdotal evidence of the younger generation, uh, But, um, you know, going back to this chart, there are some great highlights on the chart from the last 50 years of gaming. So um, I thought maybe we could pick some things out that resonate with us on there. Uh, I'll go first. I've picked in 1988. There's a little pop up on the infographic, which highlights, uh, well, it reads as follows. Sega releases the Mega Drive in Japan and the Genesis in the US. And the reason I like this part of the chart is because you can see here that the arcade revenue is still really fat. While the console revenue, it's getting fatter. It's recovered from the earlier North American crash and the crunch of revenue there on the console segment. But then you've got this nice period where arcades are doing really well. And we still go down to the arcades to be wowed by those games. But then those games are feeding into our home consoles, which are now powerful enough with the Mega Drive to do a pretty good Mm -hmm. job of recreating those arcades. But we were still really excited to go to the arcades and see what the future looked like. So it's just a nice, exciting time where consoles, arcades are doing well. PC gaming is is kind of increasing slowly, but I just like that period. Good memories at that time. What about you? Is there a highlight in the chart that you wanted to pick out?
0: I'm just constantly amazed at how big a business gaming is. You know, I, I really feel like gaming is ignored by the the mainstream press, the mainstream media. It still continues to be ignored in favor of other forms of entertainment, but the gaming industry as a whole is huge. You know, um, just, you know, coming up later on the show, we're going to talk about the acquisition of Codemasters by Take-Two for a pretty substantial sum, but it was dwarfed. It was absolutely dwarfed, Neil, by the $2.5 billion, billion with a B, Microsoft paid for Mojang, which is to say Minecraft, a game that if you look at it, it looks like a tech demo that a sophomore or comp sci major might have put together for a class project. I mean, I know there's a lot going on under the hood, but $2.5 billion for one game. I, I looked up. I looked up the chart of of all the countries in the world and their GDP. There are 25 countries in the world that have a GDP less than what Microsoft paid for the wow. rights for one game. It's just insane. But you know, I guess they know what they're doing. It just, it just it's
1: a reflection also of just how powerful these companies are becoming to be able to throw that much money around. It's, yes, uh, it's an incredible thing, and I really would encourage people to go and check out that infographic. You've you've heard our ramblings on the subject, so. Go and take a look. It's on visualcapitalist.com. Let us know your thoughts. You can find links to that and everything else in the show notes, as well as our subreddit.
0: Neil, this year has been full of anniversaries, and as we move towards December, there's at least one more worth recording. On this date, well, actually on November 23rd, 1990, the Super Famicom was released in Japan, as well as Super Mario World you'd be hard-pressed to find a better one-two punch from any system from any time. The Super Famicom, of course, was Nintendo's follow-up to its Famicom console, which by that point was seven years old and was starting to become a little long in the tooth. I'm sure many video game fans at the time were wondering if Nintendo could follow its breakout console with another hit, and in the meantime, there were already shots fired across the bow by, of course, Sega. The Mega Drive had been released over a year and a half earlier, and although sales were pretty slow in the beginning and wouldn't pick up until a certain hedgehog-based game was released in 1991, the Super Nintendo was a phenomenal success from day one, largely based on one title, the follow-up to Super Mario Bros. 3 Super Mario World neil do you remember being excited for the launch of the super nintendo in the uk or were you a staunch british gamer ready to hunker down with four or five more years of spectrum loyalty before moving on to a playstation (laughs) oh come on the
1: spectrum was getting pretty long in the tooth by then um and uh yeah yeah, i wasn't super excited for the super nintendo or the snes as we called it over here did (laughs) did you use a a shortening over there. We didn't SNES. have any of that
0: nez NES nonsense. We called it the Nintendo. No. That was the, the regular Nintendo. And then the Super Nintendo. Nintendo. We called it the Super <laughs> Nintendo, Neo. <Neil>. I mean, <laughs> just what we did. <laughs> That's what it's called. That's fair <laughs> enough. Um I had my Amiga
1: 500 at, at the point when this was released. So I was staunchly into that system. Mm. I had friends with Mega Drives, and it was a machine that I, I really liked. You know, everyone had the bundled Altered
0: Beast, the game that came with it over here. Uh,
1: was that a packing over there?
0: I believe it was in the very early days. But, you know, I didn't even, the, the Mega Drive wasn't even on my radar. You know, one of the things that I read in the article is that the Mega Drive was really hurt at the beginning because it launched within the same window that Super Mario Brothers 3 did. And that game was such a phenomenal success yeah. in Japan that it sort of overshadowed the whole system for a long time. So uh, I remember seeing early ads for the Mega Drive, but at the time, you know, I didn't even get a, a regular Nintendo until after the Mega Drive had already been launched. So I was, I was incredibly behind. On the scene,
1: yeah, yeah. So I was seeing the Mega Drive over here um, long before I got to see uh, a Super Nintendo. Um, of course, it was launched earlier, but you know, I, I, I did. I think the first time I saw a Mega Drive in in use, the, the Super Nintendo had actually been released. Mm. Um, but the Super Nintendo didn't really excite me until I visited a friend and we sat down and played two specific games on it, and those games were F-Zero and Super Mario Kart. And that's when I got a real taste for not just what the system was capable of technically, but what, I guess, an incredibly talented team of game designers, when you pair them up with a really tight quality control that you had at Nintendo, what that combination can produce, you know, both immensely playable and enjoyable games, those two. And, um, you know, this this was nothing new. That tight quality control had been a part of the NES, Nintendo. Um, and I think... The impact that had on me was particularly accentuated because as an Amiga owner, I was subjected to great games, but also a lot of terrible games, Mm -hmm. especially the arcade ports where the owner of the game would sell the license to the highest bidder. They would turn out a port as quickly as possible for all the microcomputers they could, you know, create it for to make a quick buck. And there was no gatekeeping. There was nobody there saying, hang on a minute, this port of OutRun, for example, is utter (laughs) garbage. You're not putting that out on our platform. Anything went. And, um, you know, I know Nintendo's gatekeeping wasn't without its negatives, but when it worked, it just worked so well. And you got your Mario Karts and your F-Zeros and all of your other games like that as a result of it. So that's what struck me with the Super Nintendo was just quality i think is in one word just quality mm-hmm. how about you john
0: well you know as i said the the mega drive or the genesis as it was known here was not even on my radar as a uh, as a as a nintendo owner back then in the early 90s uh but i did know about the impending launch of the super nintendo and i'm not going to lie to you neil it made me sad uh i <laughs> i I'd just gotten a nintendo um and it, it you know in in my favorite magazine, of course, Nintendo Power, I could already see the writing on the wall. You know, Each issue was hinting at this new system, and I just knew, and this comes from being an Atari 8-bit fan that watched uh, its coverage in, in the magazine's wane in light of the ST, that the Super Nintendo was going to take over the spotlight from my beloved NES sooner rather than later. Happily. Uh, I only had to wait a year or two after the North American release before getting a Super Nintendo for my birthday. Uh, I don't think it ever really had the same magic the original Nintendo system did for me. You know, Neil, I used to literally have dreams about playing the Nintendo. That's just how much I wanted one. (laughs) You know, most people dream about being able to fly or, you know, going to the moon or something. I used to dream about playing Super Mario Brothers, and I love those dreams. But anyway... um, I certainly put hundreds of hours into a bunch of Super Nintendo games. Uh, Final Fantasy III, Chrono Trigger. Uh, the SNES was also my first exposure to games. See, you're making me do it. I'm, the, the the UK <laughs> pronunciation is rubbing <laughs> off on me. Um, That's with a Z. <laughs> <laughs> the, the, the first time that I ever really got into games like City. Top Gear 2, uh, Lemmings, uh, my all-time favorite platform, The Addams Family. These were all games that also saw, of course, releases on the computer system. So, um, you know, as I came into contact with more and more people from that computer background, I could identify with some of these games just from their, their Super Nintendo ports. Uh, you might think that Lemmings on a console would have been awful, but the port is actually pretty good. Again, I, I really think that because of the added expense of producing cartridges for machines and Nintendo's, you know, kind of quality control, a lot of the computer ports, they put a lot of thought into how to best do it without a mouse, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but here's a fun fact. When I lived in Korea, I picked up a console called the Hyundai Super Comboy. Okay. Okay. <laughs> And this thing was identical to a Super Famicom, and and I did some research about it, and it turns out that until the late 90s, it was illegal for Japanese consoles to be imported into Korea because of the contentious history between the two countries. So what Hyundai and Samsung did was they licensed the consoles from Nintendo and Sega. So I also have a game or two for the Samsung Saturn as well. (laughs) Neil, what's, what's a good Super Nintendo memory you have? Oh, uh, playing
1: Street Fighter 2 for the first time on a Super Nintendo. Uh, what a port that was. Mm, yes. While I was swapping discs <laughs> and waiting minutes for a round to start on my Amiga and then fighting with a one-button <laughs> joystick, um, this little console seemed to have all the power in the world that it needed to deliver a perfect game of Street Fighter 2. It was a hard pill to swallow, seeing my 16-bit system get utterly eviscerated by another 16-bit system with that game. But I got over it and I loved visiting my friend uh, his name was Guy I used to go and visit him to play Street Fighter 2 on his Super Nintendo and it was just glorious. Good memories of that game.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, unfortunately, it looks like the 30th anniversary of the Super Famicom has come and gone with nary a special release from Nintendo themselves. Kind of a shame after so much fanfare was made for the 35th anniversary of Super Mario Brothers. Though, I guess they, they feel like they can't spread this kind of thing on too thick. Uh, still, though, a good time to reflect on one of the greatest consoles of all time. So, John, are you ready for another mini-announcement? No, but I guess I'm going to hear about it. Tell me
1: about it, Neil. (laughs) Well, the uh, latest mini release comes from Capcom, and it's coming to Japan this Christmas. It's a mini arcade that looks like a compact six-button arcade stick with an eight-inch screen attached to it, and it's presented in the very, very Capcom blue and Capcom yellow. Mm. There are 10 games on it consisting of Mega Man games, different versions of Street Fighter II and Super Puzzle Fighter, And the price hasn't been confirmed yet, but it's suggested that it's going to be around 200 US dollars. And it's coming on the 1st of December. So Capcom, you'll recall, last year released this huge arcade stick. Do you remember it? It I remember it. A bit like like a jelly mold, um, very garish, and that had 16 games on it. And this actually includes two of the same games in this mini arcade as that stick did. So if you're the world's biggest Capcom fan and you've got to have this thing, last year's stick was $200. The mini arcade here is uh, probably going to be another two hundred dollars. So that's four hundred dollars in total would get you just twenty four unique games, five of which are different versions of Street Fighter Two. What a deal! What a deal! You've sold me. (laughs) (laughs) I don't know, John. I I think the pattern of cashing in on selling the same thing over and over again is pretty clear. But you know, if that is okay for the film industry to do it, (laughs) I guess it's okay for video games. But you know, we have a choice. Uh, as to whether or not we buy these things. It it just triggers the cynic in me a little bit sometimes. But before we go all the way down that rabbit hole... What do you think of this Capcom mini arcade, John? Have you had a look at it? It, it,
0: it is a strange mix of games. You know, Capcom has a decades-long history in the arcades. They've got tons and tons and tons of arcade games. Why would you want to play Mega Man with arcade controls? That just seems like a horrible proposition to me. This, this may be the moment, Neil. This may be when the mini console has finally... Officially, for me, jump the shark. Uh, Oh, there it is. It's done. It's done. It's (laughs) done. If Capcom hadn't released that somewhat ridiculous looking stick last year, the one with the ginormous Capcom logo splayed across it, (laughs) and, and if they'd taken those games and added them in here and then taken the Mega Man games off of here, then okay, sure. I mean, every console or every company should have the right to make a mini arcade cab with their best games. But as it stands, this may be where I exit. This may be where I just I, I I pull out.
1: yeah, yeah, well, you know, let's try and find some positives in it. Um, there is one thing that I really like about this, and it's it's the screen mm-hmm. of all things, so as a whole, I think the unit looks like cheap plastic garbage, and it probably is cheap plastic garbage, but the, the screen makes me smile because it's an eight inch flat display obviously it's a modern display but what they've done is they've put a rounded front on it and a bezel around it and then a bulbous back to make it look like a crt Mm -hmm. a tiny crt I don't really like that. If somebody sold me this little CRT in in a mini standalone unit, I'd snap that up. That's a business idea right there. Yeah, that's a business
0: idea right there. That's you know, think about uh, if you could somehow create many CRTs based on this, uh, based on this blueprint that were color coded for whatever system you'd want to use it with. You know, whether it was like a you know a bread bin brown for the C sixty four. Or maybe, you know, uh, something that looks similar to the the monitor that it originally sold with the CPC. You sell that along with a with a custom case for a pie. That's a business idea right there. Capcom, that's what you yeah. need to be working on. <laughs>
1: <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, this being Capcom, as you mentioned, they've got a huge, prestigious library of games to pick from. I'm su- I'm just kind of surprised they haven't fine-tuned this and and maybe released their ultimate Street Fighter collection in an arcade stick you know just just focus in on the street fighter brand or some other brand um i think that might do better for them than than just a peppering of 16 different but kind of similar titles
0: yeah i mean i can recognize a company wanting to cast a wide net you know you want to appeal to as many players as possible but the street fighter brand is just so strong another thing i was thinking about was it's possible that with the arcade one up street fighter cab they were a little bit afraid of some cross contamination because they've mm-hmm. already licensed that out. But at the end of the day, I'm with you. Make it the ultimate Street Fighter 2 cab. Put every single variation on there, including that weird rainbow variation or whatever. <laughs> Boom, sell it. You know, people would buy that because people love Street Fighter and having all of the different versions on one machine. That, that's an attractive proposition. Yeah, on a nice mini machine
1: that just cycles through all the attract screens when you're not playing. Right, fine. That would be, right. fine. That'd be fine. Would you like to place any bets, John, on whether or not we see another mini release before the end of 2020?
0: I think we're done before 2021. The holiday season window, as you know, it, it, today it's Thanksgiving here in the United States. Tomorrow is Black Friday. The holiday season window has already opened. It's rapidly closing. I think that with the coming of the new year, we are going to see an avalanche of these, but uh, they're going to be in 2021.
1: Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm just waiting for them to get quirkier and quirkier with these things. I'm waiting for the driving games to mm. come next. I think we'll see mini cabs with steering wheels on. Uh, and then maybe we will have the light gun minis. I don't know. Maybe then the fruit machine minis. I'm excited, John. I can't wait for all the minis to come. <laughs> are, are you really, Neil? No. No. <laughs> <laughs> But anyway, let's not dismiss this because Capcom is still a brand that deserves respect. I think they did something fun with the display. So at least take a look at the pictures, follow the link in the show notes. But ultimately, John, I think the mini fatigue has set in uh, or it has to set in soon,
0: surely. Neil, I just had my weekly Amiga perusal over on eBay. I like to check out the scene. I like to see what things are selling for. Things are getting a little out of control. Can you guess... How much a stock A600 just sold for here in the United States?
1: They're in the US. Okay. I I don't know how common the A600 is. I'm I'm guessing it's rarer, a lot rarer in the US than it is over here. So let's go with $200.
0: 400 freaking dollars, Neil. (laughs) Wow. (laughs) Can you believe it? I mean, the A600 was the computer that nobody asked for and nobody wanted. And so you can only imagine how much 1200s are going for here. I mean, at least double. They frequently go for over a grand, which is insane. So when you get one of these things, it's more important than ever to protect your investment by replacing those capacitors before they leak all over your board. Now, Neil, I know you've just undertaken a similar procedure. Where did you get your new caps from?
1: Yes, I have undertaken that. I had a really good experience of recapping my A600 these last couple of weeks with Polymer Caps from RetroBench.com. And I'm so happy with them. And also the little guide that came with them to make it super easy to know where to install everything. So as a result, I've bought more of the same from Retro Bench. I've bought caps for my Atari Jaguar. I've got more coming for my Amiga 1200, which uh, I'm really worried is leaking, and I should probably be brave enough to look under the lid and check before <laughs> it's too late. But um, yeah, Scott at RetroBench.com. He does a sterling job with his capacitor kits, and I promise you, you won't be disappointed with his
0: service. He is the man for your caps. Sounds awesome. Thank you to RetroBench for sponsoring this week's episode. Codemasters, the studio founded by UK gaming luminaries Richard and David Darling way back in 1986, is soon to be no more. Although probably most famous worldwide for their racing games like Colin McRae Rally and the F1 series, UK retro gamers will always remember them best for publishing a line of budget games for the ZX Spectrum like BMX Simulator, uh, the Dizzy series, of course, and the immortal classic Jonah Lomu Rugby. Uh, American Classic <laughs> Gamers, on the other hand, know Codemasters for representing the dark underbelly of the Nintendo scene. Uh, they released tons of games under the Camerica label, which uh, bypassed Nintendo's lockout chip. Speaking of uh, the quality control, they, they, they passed that way, way by and were sold <laughs> mostly through shady magazine ads and second tier retailers. And probably most famously, they are most known for the Game Genie the cartridge bolt-on device, which allowed players to enter various cheat commands that granted unlimited lives and invincibility, as well as the ability to jump over the flagpole at the end of a level of Super Mario Brothers. Uh, the Game Genie was part of my favorite Christmas ever, which I believe was 1991, and that year I received Final Fantasy, a Game Genie, and a Game Boy. It was the greatest Christmas of all time, Neil. I cleaned <laughs> up. Uh, what were some of your favorite Codemasters titles?
1: Well, yeah, you mentioned at X Spectrum and Codemasters also had all of the other 8-bit micros covered for game releases. So before they were making Colin McRae and Toka Touring Cars, um, which was a real favorite of mine, uh, they were known for their budget game releases here in the UK. So, you know, that's that's what they did. Games at £1.99, £2.99, mm-hmm. hanging on the peg in every shop that they could get them in. Chemists, stationery shops, video stores. You could always find Codemasters games at pocket money prices and um, there really are those different distinct period of, of Codemasters' life as a budget publisher. And then in the 90s, when they became that AAA studio. What that a turnaround. Today. Yeah. Huge turnaround. Yeah, yeah. So of that budget period, I really liked the Dizzy games. And I loved a game called BMX Simulator, which was also written by the same Oliver Twins who made Dizzy. They worked really closely with the Codemasters. There was another called ATV Simulator, All Terrain Vehicle Simulator,
0: mm-hmm. which I find a lot of fun. Yeah, that one is um, that one I'll always remember because on the back of the game, on the back of the cassette, there's a huge sticker on there that says it's famous in the states. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah, yeah. I guess the ATV thing was a little bit unknown, and Britain people were a little bit unsure about what ATVs were. But heck, it was the '80s, and if it was big in the states, it was it was probably good. Anything that's cool in the States is cool to (laughs) us. Yeah,
1: absolutely. Yeah. And, um, you know, they used to do a couple of things to really try and push the sales like exactly as you've just described. Uh, For example, they'd put the word simulator or advanced on titles. So we had games like advanced pinball simulator or super tank simulator, (laughs) which, you know, that, that always made me smile. Uh, And so much so, it ended up being mocked by the magazine Your Sinclair, who released a game on the cover of their magazine called Advanced Lawnmower Simulator. (laughs) (laughs) So, uh, you know, but the naming conventions, it must have worked for sales because they kept on doing it and they kept on selling well. And the other thing they did, as you described, is they put big quotes on the backs of the boxes. So You look at the screenshots on the back of the books because that's how you made your decision back then. Should I buy this or shouldn't I? What What do the pictures look like? And in big letters, there were quotes like, absolutely brilliant or incredible arcade action. And these were just their own quotes. They didn't come from a magazine review or anything. You know, it's just like me saying, John, what do you think of our podcast? It blew my mind. (laughs) There you go. There you go. And now I'm going to put that in big letters on the thumbnail for the podcast. But, you know, it worked. It worked for them. They were very shrewd in a very new market Mm -hmm. and they figured it all out. So uh, they got where they are today through enjoyable games and shrewd business practice. And here we are now with Codemasters being
0: sold so um, just fill us in. What's going on with this then, John? Well, according to the BBC, uh, Take-Two Interactive which is a huge American video game publisher, I mean they are almost like a clearinghouse of developers they have so many people working under them has offered a deal that would buy out Codemasters to the tune of 739 million pounds It's uncertain what the buyout would entail in terms of what studio would remain open which ones would close, but Codemasters is currently located of course in the Southam Warwickshire. I'm sure I'm saying that <laughs> exactly correctly. How would you actually say that? Warwickshire. Warwickshire. Yeah. You have
1: Warwickshire Castle there. It's a beautiful place. Mm, is Masters um,
0: actually located inside the castle? Uh, no, oh, unfortunately, unfortunately. no. That's owned by uh, Merlin Entertainments now. Ooh. Yes. Uh, little but fact for you. <laughs> you know, even if the development studios remained open in England, it's likely that a lot of the overhead office jobs will shift to New York. Well, where uh, Take Two has its headquarters. So, Neil, we went through this a few years ago with Take Two's acquisition of Rockstar. Does it make you sad that if the sale goes through, there will be no UK owned major development studios left? Is, Is England making a mistake by yet again selling her family silver?
1: Oh, is England making mistakes? Well, um, it's what we do best, John. <laughs> we we make something brilliant and then uh, realizing how brilliant it is uh, only after selling it. And that mm. seems to be what we do. Mm. So, you know, I remember going to America about five years ago. Uh, and when I was there, I saw being advertised, not only had you bought the Queen Mary, a historic cruise ship built over here in mm-hmm. the 1930s. Sure. Yeah you'd filled it with possessions of Princess Diana and had an exhibition of them all right there in California. And it it just made me smile that this was something incredibly British that was of great value and historic value and historic interest, which actually I know I'd love to have visited in the UK and many would, but Mm. we won't have the opportunity because we either don't have the foresight to keep hold of these things, or perhaps we're just too quick to cash in on an opportunity to sell it. I don't know. So it seems to happen a lot, uh, but I can see Codemasters being another Queen Mary. You know, mm-hmm. I, I think it will feel odd if it ends up being based in the US for us old gamers who remember its roots and its heritage. But let's be, let you know, let's be fair to the next gener- generation of gamers. That, that means nothing to them. You know, they'll, they'll hold Codemasters to account on the quality of their latest releases. And maybe that's how it should be. You know, we can't get too misty eyed about these things. I don't know. Maybe I need to stop thinking about old cruise liners and just get a speedboat, John.
0: Yeah, I don't know. It's, <laughs> it's, it's a tough one for sure. Uh, from a business perspective, that valuation would be a hard one for shareholders to turn down. I mean, remember, we're talking about publicly traded companies here and uh, you've got to do what will make you the most profit. And, and that's the one thing that take two and American firms in general. You know, um, uh, American companies know how to make money, Neil. I don't know if you've noticed that, but <laughs> there, there's there's <laughs> there's, some, there's some big corporations around here. Uh, I do feel sadness about Codemasters uh, as an independent. You know, not just you know a UK firm, but an independent studio shutting down is always a little bit sad, especially one that's been at it longer than almost everybody. And, and I do think that there's nothing wrong with a little bit of pride in one's nation when it comes to successful companies being headquartered there. But you know, in today's globalized world, I don't think it's going to affect the quality of the games. You know, everybody is, is making great games. And I don't think that that's going to, that's going to stop with this acquisition. I don't think that Rockstar's output has demonstrably suffered since they were acquired. Um, I I do wonder about, you know, are they going to start putting more things like loot boxes or, you know, subscription required games in it just to just to kind of juice the the, the profitability of these games. But we don't know if Codemasters would have stayed independent if they wouldn't have introduced those same things either. So uh, I'm sure we're going to see annualized versions of the Cody's most successful franchises remain right on target for a long time to come.
1: So thank you for listening to This Week in Retro. Join our show subreddit and contribute your favorite stories from the world of retro.
0: Help us spread the word about the show by leaving us a review on your podcast app of choice, sharing our Facebook page, or just telling our retro-loving friend. See you next week for more up-to-date news for out-of-date tech.